Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Uh, Rick, we got a lot to talk about, uh, including um, some big news on the 2020 front. Joe Biden is in, just as we all predicted here on Powerhouse Politics. Yep. And he's not only in, but he is right there at the top of the polls, which we know... Well, we'll talk we'll about what less. that means. Um, but but before we get to that, and and and, and I want to say that we have waiting uh, in the green room to come on uh, Nate Silver of Five Thirty Eight to walk us through where we are right now uh, in the uh, Democratic primary. But big day in Washington today. There's a little break in the action. We're running in here to do the to the podcast. Um, Bill Barr testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and uh, wow. I mean, I, I got a lot to talk about on this one. Well, let's get to it, John. To my mind, we all thought that maybe Barr and Mueller agreed with each other and that whatever whatever differences might have been along the way and all the talk of witch hunt and everything else, Mueller and Barr were on the same page. But wow, can you say daylight? We have learned a whole lot about how Mueller felt like this critical couple of weeks in between the the, uh, the, the initial letter and the full report uh, was perceived and how Barr has handled the questions that have come his way since then. It has been a rough day on Capitol Hill for an attorney general who has a whole lot to say about the future of the Trump presidency. And, and it's been a – I think it's been – I mean, I don't want to get too weighty and serious here, but I think these are serious times. Watching the Republicans on this committee um, – Maybe I should no longer be surprised, but yeah. look, there are serious questions about the way the attorney general has handled this situation, about the decision on obstruction of justice and to make a call on that, about the way he represented or misrepresented uh, the principal conclusions in his letter on March 20th. There are a lot of really serious questions. There are questions about the substance. Remember, this is the first time Barr has testified since the release of the report, 488-page report, 448-page report that has um, – you know, I mean, a lot to talk about and to ask the attorney general about. And Republicans have not asked a damn thing about the Mueller report itself. Uh, they have uh, been acting simply as, a, as, as kind of first line of defense uh, for the attorney general. And they've been talking a heck of a lot about Hillary Clinton. Uh, so that's been the context here. But, but I, you know, I got to tell you um, – I want to get into, you know, some of the substance of what has been said here at this hearing and some of Barr's answers. Um, he's been very steady, I will say that, uh, in, in in the face of uh, of some very tough questioning. He's been there and, and done that before, right? Oh, the, my the, God. He, you feel like there's nothing you can say or do to him that he's really going to care about. Um, but, well, okay, let's just start with this one thing that caught me very early on in the hearing um, and he was asked about uh, the, the, uh, the question of obstruction of justice and specifically what Don McGahn told the special counsel about in, in terms of the president, you know, directing him to have uh, Robert Mueller fired, calling him at home twice, you know, did you do it yet? And he created this distinction between asking to have him fired or having him removed. Okay, so just listen to, listen to Barr trying to create a distinction between fire and remove. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yeah. Wait a minute, wait, Trevor, oh. Trevor, that, that was Bill Clinton. <laughs> Easy to confuse. Okay, okay, go back to uh, Barr, Barr. There is a distinction between saying to someone, go fire him, go fire Mueller, and saying have him removed based on conflict. Okay, wait. Wait a minute. 
Play the Clinton thing again. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. Play Mueller again. There is a distinction between saying to someone, go fire him, go fire Mueller, and saying, have him removed based on conflict. Okay. Rick, what is the difference between telling somebody you are removed and you are fired? Well, he would have to say they have different results, John. Um, I guess... Oh, yeah. So, okay, okay, okay go ahead. Go, go, go. Trevor's got that, too. Trevor, play the longer. There version. is a distinction between saying to someone, go fire him, go fire Mueller, and saying, have him removed based on conflict. And what would They have different be? results. What would that conflict be? Well, the, the difference between them is if you remove someone for a conflict of interest, then there would be a, another, presumably another person appointed. I mean, first of all, if you fire somebody, it doesn't mean you're not going to replace them. Right. And if right. you remove him for whatever reason, whether it's some, you know, kind of, I mean, come on, conflict of it, come on. Uh, you, you, that doesn't mean you're not going to replace him or and, you're going to replace him. Doesn't, I mean, either, I, I don't get it. And, and, if, and it gets to what Barr has done consistently through this, which is try to climb into the president's mindset and explain, or in some cases, explain away his conduct. You'll recall he was defending the, the use of the term witch hunt even. He says, well, if it feels like a witch hunt if you're wrongly accused. He was angry. He was upset. He was emotional. He was doing and saying things that, uh, that you can expect based on the mindset. That's extraordinary about this. I don't know. The look, way look. the attorney general has, has sought to b- basically cover for a president who says and does explosive things. Okay. So – but, but, but the, the larger context here of this hearing is what we learned. Washington Post first reported the story um, – uh, last night, and now the Justice Department has actually released the letter. But we've learned that on March 27th, so three days after Barr's famous March 24th letter about the principal findings of the Mueller report, we learned that Mueller himself was concerned about what Barr had done in that letter. And I, I don't want to – I'm going to read this if you don't mind. Sure. Because um, I, I, I think that – Yeah. L- let's not characterize. Let's say exactly what he said. Um, he, um, he says, I previously sent you a letter dated March 25th, 2019, that, the inc- that enclosed the introduction and executive summary for each volume of the special counsel's report marked with redactions – to remove any information that needed to be removed. So, in other words, what we're learning here is that when when Mueller turned over the the, the summaries, the actual summaries of, of of his two volume report, that he did it in a redacted way, a way that could so be it could released. be released. Yes. Okay. Um, and he says he goes on to say he's he, he is submitting those redacted summaries again in this letter saying, I am requesting that you provide these materials to Congress and authorize their public release at this time. And why does he do that? Here's what he says. As we stated in our meeting of March 5th and reiterated to the department early in the afternoon of March 24th, the introductions and executive summaries of our two-volume report accurately summarize this office's work and conclusions. That's why he redacted them. That's why he submitted them in a way that could be released. The summary letter the department sent to Congress, that's Barr's letter, and released to the public late in the afternoon of March 24th did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of this office's work and conclusions. Mueller is alarmed enough to put in writing to Barr 
that what Barr put out, his 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 little uh, four page letter, did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of our office's work and conclusions. Now, do you remember what Barr said when he testified before Congress in advance of the release of the Mueller report, but after? Uh, uh, his uh, his four page letter. Do you remember what he said? I think Trevor does. Trevor, can you play the the, the two exchanges? Reports have emerged recently, uh, General, that members of the special counsel's team are frustrated at some level with the limited information included in your March twenty fourth letter uh, that it does not adequately or accurately necessarily portray the report's findings. Do you know what they're referencing with that? No, I don't. I think, I think, uh, I suspect that they probably wanted, you know, more put out. Did, did Bob Mueller support your conclusion? I don't know whether Bob Mueller supported my conclusion. I mean, come on. So the letter's already gone out at this point. The, the Mueller has already written to Barr. And, and I, they've had a conversation. They've, they've talked about it. This has been in the public realm. It's before we see the full report, but it is all out there. And I read this, John, as Bob Mueller former FBI director, embattled special counsel who has lived through all of this and knows Barr very well, saying, you know what, Bill, I see what you're doing here, and I'm going to call you on it. I'm putting this rec- this paper into the public record. I'm giving you another chance to release the summary uh, as I see as, as an accurate summary of, of my investigation, my own words. I'm going to call you on it, and Barr says, I still don't care. He still doesn't do anything about it. He still pursues his own path, which is to to go with the unredacted report, leaving that period of weeks out there where the president is crowing about full exoneration. We know now that Mueller is saying that is not even close to an accurate summation of his work. I mean, Mueller wrote an entire volume on obstruction uh, that raised serious concerns about whether or not the president obstructed justice. He did not make the call. History will judge whether or not that was a wise thing for him to not make a call on. Right. but Barr's letter, while he does reference that there were – he put things on both sides of the question. I mean not really. I mean Barr, uh, uh, Mueller's report lays out <laughs> a, a pretty compelling case that the president did a, seri- did a series of things that raised serious questions about obstruction of justice. Not like on one hand, on the other hand. But no, this is the series of things that raised uh, concerns. And here you have Barr testifying – um, that, that he doesn't under, he doesn't know what I, I don't I don't know do they have any concerns I don't know so but but I want to play to you from today's hearing when Mueller is I'm sorry when Barr is confronted about this uh, by Senator Pat Leahy listen to this my question was why did you say uh, you were not aware of concerns when weeks before your testimony Mr. Mueller had expressed concerns to you. I mean, that's a fairly simple... Well, I answered a question, and the question was relating to unidentified members who were expressing frustration over the accuracy relating to findings. I don't know what that refers to at all. I talked directly to Bob Mueller, not members of his team, and even though I did not know what was being referred to... And, had, and, and, and Mueller had never told me that, that, my, that the f- expression of, of the findings was inaccurate. But I did then volunteer that I thought they were talking about the desire to have more information put out. But it wasn't my purpose to put out more. I, you know, I, I, I don't even we'll have to go back and look word for word. But I, I don't. Do you understand what he's saying there? I 
think I do. And what he's basically saying is, I know what he was trying to ask there, but he didn't actually ask it directly. So I was able to get around it because I'm a very, very good lawyer. Because, uh, again, what Mueller wrote to Barr on March 27th, before he was asked about it in the committee, the House and Senate committees, he, Mueller said that he's concerned that the t- March 24th letter from Barr did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance right. of the but work. Char- that, Charlie Crist, Charlie those Crist, are concerns. Congressman Charlie Crist's question, though, was that members of the team, not Mueller himself, was saying oh. it. So that's one so, out. So, and then frustrated at some level. What you know? What what is frustrated at? What level are we talking at which about? Level? He didn't know which, which level. level. You know. So it, is Mueller is, not part of the Mueller team? <laughs> he's not a member necessarily. It's mind bending the the contortions that uh, that the attorney general went through to get to this place, and it it does raise questions about what his purpose was in all of this, right? Because it was going to come out anyway. And when you lump this in with the fact that he held that news conference, that unusual news conference on the morning of the Mueller report, explaining the president's mindset, explaining his view that actually it did uh, show that there was no obstruction, basically an exoneration, it raises questions about his, his ability, his, his credibility in the, in the Congress. You're seeing a number of members, including some 2020, are saying he's got to go, he's got to resign. And I think, John, it's going to reopen what I think a lot of Democrats hope was a closed debate around impeachment because it, it puts all of the last couple of weeks in a much different context. Have you heard a single Republican express concerns about this? About today? Yeah, about, about Barr's handling of this. Not yet. Maybe Mitt Romney will have a strongly worded tweet. One other thing that caught my ear in the uh, in, in the opening sessions of this uh, of this testimony, Barr's testimony today, uh, it was this issue of the president and his cooperation with the special counsel. And by the way, you know we've discussed this, and I think that. Barr would be on solid ground to, 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 to be talking about this aspect. The president allowed 20 members of his, uh, of, of his White House staff to, uh, to, to talk to the special counsel at length, including uh, his, uh, his White House counsel. Right. He could have easily invoked privilege, at least had a long fight about that, maybe even could have won. Uh, he turned over uh, – the, the Trump legal team took t- turned over, you know – more than, uh, I mean, how many documents? Uh, more, more than a million, million pages documents, of documents. Uh, so, you, you know, there, there was a hell of a lot of cooperation. And I think that's, you know, e- even as you have all these incidents that, that Mueller points out, the countervailing thing is that is that they were largely cooperating. But there was one area they did not cooperate, and it was the president's right not to cooperate on this one. Uh, but he did not agree uh, to do an in-person interview. But the way... Barr described this today. We'll take a listen. The president, of course, declared many times publicly in tweets and at campaign rallies and all that he would testify. He never did testify, correct? Uh, as far as I know. Well, By the way, as far I as think you know whether he testified or as not. As far as I know, he didn't testify. And uh, Mr. Mueller found the written answers to be inadequate. Is that correct? Uh, I think he wanted uh, additional but he never sought it. And the president never testified. Well, he, 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 never, he never pushed it. The president never testified. He never sought it? He never sought it? He never pushed for it? Could, uh, look, yeah. I, I, I'm going to bring you into this uh, process a little bit, Rick, because I spent much of the last you know year of my life uh, reporting and trying to get every detail I could of, of this investigation. The 
special counsel's team pushed very aggressively to get an in-person interview with the president for much of last year, really basically beginning in around the springtime mm-hmm. until this thing was done. Uh, they There were back and forth. Uh, we know this not because Barr revealed it um, or not because Mueller revealed it. We know it because the president's legal team talked about it. Um, there was a lot of back and forth. Uh, they were pushing. I also have uh, sources who have told me, and I've reported previously, that um, that there was a ma- there was a big debate between uh, the special counsel and Maine Justice over whether or not to actually subpoena the president to attempt to compel him to do this interview. And uh, ultimately, the decision was made not to issue a subpoena, but the special counsel pushed that. And did the president ever say he'd do it? Well. Um, you know, you heard Leahy say that he did it um, in a in a series of tweets or more than rallies. that. I feel like more than that. Yeah, I think I think I might have asked him Maybe a question about that. A couple in the of Rose times, Garden I feel like a little bit. Yes, yeah. um, and he said a hundred percent, which which is a hundred percent. Yeah, uh, that Check he would do it. So anyway, I. Like I don't know where all this is going to go. Um, you, you're, you're suggesting that maybe all of this kind of revives the impeachment push. I don't know. It doesn't change the dynamic that Nancy Pelosi and 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 others have have, have set for impeachment, which would have to have significant buy-in for the Republicans. Again, striking to me that there really wasn't a single yeah. serious question asked on the Republican side in this hearing, yeah, uh, except I, about Hillary Clinton and about uh, Peter Strzok and about stuff that, that kind of predates. Uh, the uh, the Mueller investigation, and you have to say that even even knowing the facts and the sequence of events, even that changing doesn't necessarily change the politics. We, we've seen it in our polling; we don't know that people actually care and digest about it. But it certainly looks a lot different now than it did a few weeks ago. But you know, I mean, maybe maybe that is the perfect segue to get to the politics of all this. Let's take a quick break, Rick. I, I, I see we've got Nate Silver uh, ready to give us the, uh, the 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 true line on the Democratic primary. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics, and we need to check in on the 2020 race. Big new addition, obviously. Joe Biden, as I told you, Rick, uh, made it official. You were consistent. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so so who better to kind of try to calibrate where things are right now in the race for the Democratic uh, nomination than the great Nate Silver of 538. Thank you for joining us, Nate. Yeah, thank you, guys. Uh, so, look, we, we, we all know polls at this point are, are a little ridiculous um, in, a, in, in a primary, especially one with, uh, with now 20 declared candidates. But it seems pretty clear that as we look at this race right now, that not only did Biden get in, but he is the guy to beat right now. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, and I would, I would take issue with the idea that polls are ridiculous at this point. Okay. Um, probably about half the time throughout history, um, the candidate leading the polls now goes on to win his or her primary, um, which given that primaries typically consist of um, maybe not 20 candidates like we have now, but usually consist of you know 10 or 12 candidates is, is somewhat impressive, actually. Um, so, you know, that's number one. Number two is, yeah, Biden is is way out in front of the most recent polls. So if you look at the polls that were out since he announced, he's at around, um, you know, 36 or 37 percent on average. And then other candidates have declined. So Sanders is down to around 16% or 17%. So it's a big lead. Um, Harris is down to 7 or 8%. Beto is down to 6 or 7%. Warren has actually improved. So maybe some of that decline in Bernie's numbers does not come from Biden, but from Warren. And Mayor Pete um, is doing fine. He's still getting his 
six or eight or ten percent, which, given his low name recognition, is is pretty decent. Um, but you have a clear front runner in the primary, and it's Joe Biden. It is emphatically not two front runners in in Biden and Bernie. In fact, Biden is or Bernie is closer to the rest of the pack than he is to to Biden, at least right now. And it's kind of post bounce period, and we probably will see Biden's numbers fade after after three or four weeks. So what what is your read? They'll maybe fade a bit. How enduring does he look, though, as as a front runner? So I, so I yeah, I guess. And let's unpack. You, you you said something that's very important at the beginning here, which is although we we all tend to kind of um, to dismiss polls this early, you point out that's an amazing stat. You know, roughly half the time the front runner now gets the nomination. So I guess if we go back four years ago, uh, Hillary Clinton was the front runner in the Democratic race. Who was was it? Jeb Bush at this point with the with uh, so the Republicans. At, at this point, if you want to be very literal, this is the point four years ago when like Republicans were just starting to officially declare for the race, right? Mm-hmm. So it got off to a slower start. Um, but but probably either Jeb Bush or Scott Walker um, were the kind of initial front runners, and they were at about fifteen percent. So you do have to look at the number, right? If you're at fifteen percent, um, like Scott Walker or Jeb Bush was fifteen percent. Which, by the way, is where Bernie is now. is is not much of a front runner. Right. Um, if you're at thirty or thirty five percent, which is where Biden kind of was before, that gets more formidable. It's like kind of Walter Mondale in in eighty four or um, or Bob Dole in ninety six. If you're up to fifty percent or something, then you're really formidable. And so Biden is kind of somewhere in between these kind of token front runners and the real front runners. And where was Hillary in in two thousand eight? 2008, she was around, I think she was around 40, 45% with Obama at around 20% or something. Um, and so, yeah, she is certainly, the 08 version of Hillary is one of the more prominent frontrunners to have lost. Um, and Biden is definitely not polling as well as Hillary did in 2008. By any metric, he's not, he's not that strong a frontrunner. But again, if you are getting now into the mid to high 30s, then that's more serious than the kind of um, high 20s, low 30s, where he was before. With all that said, all these candidates that get a bounce, so Bernie entered and he went from whatever, 17% to 25%. Now he's back down to 17%. Beto went from uh, 6 to 11 Now he's back down to 6 And so odds are that Biden is not going to sustain this at 38% or whatever. We'll be back down to 30 And then there'll be more votes up for grabs again. But to me, the takeaway is more like not that Biden is super duper strong. I would say, number one, I think he's like a little bit overlooked by the media because his supporters are not necessarily like the Twitter following podcast listening demographic. Um, it's more working class voters, older voters, um, a lot of African-Americans. So I do think he's underrated. Um, at the same time, there's not an obvious number two in the race, um, not with Bernie having slipped back. And there's also a New Hampshire poll yesterday that had Bernie at like 12 percent tied with Buttigieg, which is not a very good result at all for for Bernie. Um, and so my main thesis right now is, yeah, Biden's a front runner. Doesn't mean he's a favorite to win relative to everyone else. It just means that he's more likely than anyone else, you know, one-on-one to win. Nate, one thing that, that strikes me about this field, 20 people in the field, you, you, it, it, of course, that's incredibly crowded, historically crowded. But if you look at the argument that Biden is putting forward, I'm not sure that he's all that crowded in his own lane or lanes. Define for, for us, for our listeners, what the Biden lane looks like, how much he is depending on blue-collar, working-class Democrats, how much he's depending on older Democrats, and is that part of what 
makes him kind of an undervalued, underrated commodity right now. Yeah, so age for the past couple of cycles has been the big dividing line in the Democratic primary. And so Biden does much better with voters over 50 um, and really, really well with voters over 65. Um, I think in CNN's poll, he had half the vote among voters 65 or older. He also does really well with um, with black Democrats. So I think Quinnipiac, or rather CNN again, had him with like 40 or 45 percent or 50 percent among among non-white Democrats. Um, he's gotten some endorsements from black Democrats. I, I would imagine that Kamala Harris and Cory Booker will uh, will have longer looks from black voters in the black establishment later on. But for the time being, Biden kind of captures really two demographics. He captures older, non-college educated, working class whites. Plus, for the time being, about half or almost half the African-American vote. And that's a coalition that historically is very powerful in Democratic politics. Um, Usually if you have a coalition between black voters, which are about 20% of the electorate, and any substantial coalition of white voters um, in the primary can be sometimes more progressive whites and blacks as it was for Obama, for example, or more moderate whites and blacks as it was for Hillary Clinton. That historically is like the coalition that tends to win Democratic primaries. And so, and it can be overlooked, but like, you know, African American voters wind up picking the winning candidate the large majority of the time in the primary. With that said, if you talk to Biden's campaign, and I did in writing this story, um, they will probably tell you that, hey, we don't expect to hold at 45 or 50%. We expect um, Kamala Harris or, or, or Cory Booker or someone else who knows will come along and, and make a serious play for the African American vote. And we'll do overperform among black voters, but probably not do as well as we are right now. And Nate, another thing that strikes me in the rollout of Biden is the way that he's responding to critiques that he's not sufficiently progressive. He talks about the Obama-Biden legacy. He talks, though, also about needing to build on Obamacare and not and not go for Medicare for all. But listen to what he said. Listen to what he told our colleague Robin Roberts about what it means to be a progressive. He has said that he is the most progressive candidate out there. I'm, I'm the first person of national consequence to come out for same-sex marriage. I've been, I've worked very hard to see to it that uh, we, uh, on civil rights and civil liberties. I have, uh, my rec- I was always labeled as one of the most liberal members of the United States Congress. Progressive now, if it makes you progressive to mean that you are for Medicare for all, or makes a progressive that... That wasn't the standard of what constituted in the past, what was progressive. Nate Silver, is he right that, it, that the definition has changed? And do you, you, do you think he can be <laughs> successful in kind of redefining it back to what it used to be when he was coming of age politically? So there, there are kind of two separate questions here. Um, one might be if I were like writing a story about a fact check about how progressive is Joe Biden over the course of his career. I might say he's he's not that progressive. He's closer to being a moderate Democrat that would show up if you look at all the votes that he has cast over time um, when he would take certain stances on certain issues, explicitly conservative on some issues like school busing back a long time ago in the 70s. So I'm not sure that that claim would withstand a fact check. But I do think it might withstand the scrutiny, ironically, of Democratic voters. Um, because he was Obama's vice president for eight years, um, you know, he was a little bit out in front of Obama himself on gay marriage, although remember, Obama was not that far out in front of Democrats as a whole on gay marriage. Um, but like a lot of questions that you would have about some other old senator, um, ex-senator who decided to run for office, are not going to be asked by Democrats because he was the VP, because he is closely tied to Obama, and because 
Obama is still very popular among among Democratic voters. Like in some ways, the Biden campaign is is just really bread and butter kind of very obvious themes, right? It's like restore America to the great place it was before Trump, restore Obama's priorities and middle class, middle class, middle class. Um, it's very basic messaging, but he has the advantage that because he is so well known, he doesn't have to weave in all the biography. He doesn't have to explain why he should be the one you should pick for president so much as here's what I stand for. And it's, it's cuts, uh, uh, cuts very straight um, to like the actual conclusion. And I think that's, I think that's helpful. It's very clear messaging compared to these like muddled things that Beto might have where it's like kind of biography plus ideology, plus a little bit of policy thrown in the clarity of that message. Even it's not that, not that sophisticated, not always frankly exactly accurate, I think is a little underrated. And and we know you have to go, Nada. One one final point I think is interesting is that he's had over this kind of long preamble to his rollout uh, some very negative uh, stories. All, all the question of 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 of, of his uh, of his interactions with women, the Anita Hill saga. Look, a look at his uh, his his voting record. Even 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 the uh, you know the New York Times had the story about see how he supported uh, uh, the the the, um, the effort to undermine Roe v. Wade. Um, you know, he's got a long record that is easy to attack uh, in a Democratic primary, and he has been he, he has had an avalanche of negative publicity, and yet it it, it se- he seems to have weathered it. Now, obviously, we're very early, uh, but you know, as a lot of this stuff was happening, I you know I I I, I know I am not as smart of an observer as you on this stuff, Nate. But I was thinking, you know, th- this this uh, you know Biden, um, uh, this is going to be a rough a rough go. But it's probably it it probably in some ways helps him that all that negative stuff got out even before he announced. Yeah, it's, it's almost like for someone where that gets out. Exactly. When it, when it gets out ahead of time, like for a Biden, for example, maybe there's less impact than there might be for like a Amy Klobuchar or something, right? Where people never heard very much about her. Then they hear negative stories about how she treated her staff. Um, but again, the fact that he was Obama's VP for eight years, I think, answers a lot of voters' questions. At the same time, there are some vulnerabilities that have not been litigated yet. Um, I think for both him and Bernie Sanders... I still really wonder how comfortable voters will be um, nominating someone who is now 76 or, in Bernie's case, 77 years old. A lot of voters, if you poll them in the abstract and say, um, do you feel comfortable with someone 75 or older to be president? They say, no, I do not. Um, And sooner or later, you would have to figure that would come up in some way in voters' evaluation of the candidates. And I also think right now people think that Biden is very electable against Trump. Um, but as they get more comfortable with other candidates, especially the women, it doesn't make sense to me that you have um, Democratic parties about 60 percent women, about 40 percent non-white. It doesn't make sense to me that you have these two or three or four white men who are leading the field and that you're not going to have Kamala Harris or Warren or Klobuchar or Cory Booker or someone who's not a white man kind of catch up and be at least a, a big player in the race later on. So there are real vulnerabilities for Biden. I just don't think it's like the ideology stuff, given that Democrats, there are lots of Democrats that are mainstream moderate liberals. Um, That's a big, wide lane in the primary, not when we hear as much about, but especially for older Democrats and for and for black Democrats, a lot of them are happy to call themselves moderate instead of liberal. All right, Nate Silver, thank you. We'll have you back, uh, you know, probably another uh, few dozen times before uh, (laughs) before we get through. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Nate. 
Um, but but it, I mean, it's 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 interesting that he is. Uh, uh, the, the fact he had this kind of long long period, you know, before announcing. And there were some people, even some people in this studio, that, Maybe. that, 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 that might have doubted whether or not he was actually going to pull the trigger. And um, I, you know, who knows? Who knows where it's going in terms of the age thing? That's, I think Nate makes a really good question. And of course, he's going to have to navigate his way through a bunch of debates. And how does he look on the debate stage? Does he look like a guy that that, that should be retired, or does he look like he's ready to take the fight to Trump? And the age also of the way a campaign is run. I, I was in Pittsburgh for the launch earlier this week, John, and it felt very old school. This was a Teamsters Hall in a working class neighborhood of Pittsburgh, not a lot of diversity, kind of an older crowd, a very union-heavy crowd. It felt like the way that you launched a campaign in the kind of Reagan Democrat, lunch bucket Democrat era. It didn't feel very 28, 2019, 2020. That's his play, though, in a lot of ways, that, that, that we've seen this argument debate, debated online about you know Democrats not being Twitter, Twitter not being the real life, right? That is the embodiment of it. That's the test that he is posing, and he comes in with a position of some strength despite all of the all of the critiques on the front end. And he's running basically on a platform of let's make America great again, make America moral again. Well, Mom- Mama, Mama's a little <laughs> tougher. Yeah, yeah. Mama. <laughs> <laughs> <Like> mama. <laughs> all right, all right. That's all the time we have now for Powerhouse Politics. Uh, thank you for listening. We will be back with you next week. Thanks to you, to our entire team, Trevor Hastings. El Jefe, Avery Miller, Angie Yak. Uh, We'll be back uh, next week.